from the audio archives of the Bible Study Hour. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the classic teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. God notices our tears. He's touched by our tears. He remembers our tears, yes, but God also acts to remove our tears and forever. Here again, the example of Jesus is instructive. Suppose for a minute that the 11th chapter of John had ended with the verse we are studying, Jesus wept. Well, wouldn't be much of a story that way. There would be no comfort in it. If that were the case, I even doubt if John would have included the story in his gospel. But this is not what happened. Instead, we read that Jesus first wept, but then acted to raise Lazarus and restore him to his sisters. Author, theologian, and pastor, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce began teaching on the Bible Study Hour in 1969. He went to be with his Lord in 2000, yet his biblical insights and in-depth teaching continue to encourage, equip, and edify believers. The goal of the Bible Study Hour is to prepare Christians to think and act biblically. On this edition of the Bible Study Hour, Dr. Boyce presents the message entitled, Our Tears in God's Bottle. When you were a child, what kind of relationship did you have with your father? You may have been close to him, and you could share with him your fears, problems, and tears. Or your relationship may have been distant, cold, unloving, or perhaps you never knew your father. Do you wish you had a close, loving relationship with your father? Whatever your family background, you can know God as your loving father. You can share your heart with Him, knowing that He fully loves and accepts you through Jesus Christ. The scripture text for this edition of the Bible Study Hour is John chapter 11, verses 33 through 37. Here now is Dr. James Montgomery Boyce with the message entitled, Our Tears in God's Bottle. There's a strange law of biblical exposition that says that the longer the text to be taught, the shorter the amount of time necessary to deal with it, or conversely, the shorter the text, the more time necessary. I find that if I have only 10 minutes to speak, I can, if necessary, deal with an entire book. I've done that on occasion. If I have only 10 seconds, I suppose I could cover the entire Bible. In fact, I suppose I could do it now in just 10 words. The message of the Bible is man's complete ruin in sin God's perfect remedy in Christ. So, the long text takes a short time, and on the other hand, a verse as short as John 11.35, Jesus wept. Well, that takes weeks. We've already had one study of this text in which we looked at the words for what they have to teach us about Jesus Christ. But they can also teach us about God the Father about ourselves and about the love of Christ, which is to be the pattern of our love, both for God and one another. It's the first of these remaining subjects, the teaching about God the Father, that we want to turn to now. Now, we can see how this follows from the fact that the text teaches us about Jesus. Because if Jesus is God, as he is, and if Jesus wept, then there must be a sense in which we can say that God the Father weeps too. We have to be careful how we say this, of course. I'll introduce some qualifications later. Nevertheless, even with these qualifications, we must say that if Jesus weeps, 
Then we are to learn that the God of the universe weeps also in the sense that he cares about us, identifies with us, and shows mercy. At this point, Karl Barth has written warmly and perceptively, contrasting the biblical view of God with the view of some of the German theologians. In the mirror of the humanity of Jesus Christ, the humanity of God reveals itself. Thus God is as he is. Thus he affirms man. Thus he is concerned about him. Thus he stands up for man. The God of Schleiermacher cannot show mercy. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can and does. It's a merciful and suffering God that we see reflected in the tears of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we should notice, before going further, that this was a novel and even shocking idea in Christ's day, particularly among the Greeks to whom John was writing. Today, conditioned as we are by a culture that's taken on some Christian ideas and values, we find the idea of a compassionate God natural. Why wouldn't he be like this, we reason? But in John's day, among the Greeks, God was thought to be above all such emotions. William Barclay presents the situation well in his commentary, showing that to most pagan thinkers, the primary characteristic of God was what they called apatheia. This is the word from which we get our English word apathy, but it doesn't mean precisely what we mean when we use the word in English. Apathy means a lack of feeling or indifference. Apatheia, the Greek word, means a total inability to feel any emotion whatever. By it, the Greeks meant that God could not feel anger, love, pain, disappointment, hope, or any of the other emotions which so totally make up our existence. Now, we want to ask, how did the Greeks come to attribute apatheia to God? Well, they reasoned like this. If a person can feel sorrow or joy, gladness or grief, it means that someone else can have an effect upon him, or it's someone else who causes these emotions. And if another can have an effect upon him, it follows that he must also have power over him, at least for the moment. But no one can have power over God. That's impossible. And if this is so, then it must mean that God cannot have feelings. He must be lonely, isolated, compassionless. He can be approached through reason, perhaps, but not on the basis of his love or pity. Well, it's a very different picture that Jesus has given us of God. Jesus wept, and so revealed a God who enters into the anguish of his people and grieves with them in their afflictions. Now, I said a few moments ago that I would need to introduce some qualifications in this whole matter of speaking of the sufferings of God, and I must do that now, for we must not think that when we say that God suffers, we are saying precisely the same thing that we're saying when we say that we suffer. For one thing, when we suffer, weep, or grieve, we never do so entirely in innocence, because all our sorrows are linked to sin, and we never are entirely sinless in any sorrowful situation. This is not true of God. If he 
sorrows with us. It is because of our sin and its consequences, and never because of some sin or shortcoming in himself. Secondly, when we say that God suffers with us, we do not mean that there's therefore a change in God, as though he were not suffering before, but now suddenly he grieves because of what we have done. In their aversion to this idea, the Greeks were entirely right. God is the Eternal One. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In God there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, as James says. So, while saying that God enters into our suffering, we do not mean that God has ever been surprised or altered his feelings or plans because of anything we have done. And third, we must notice that while we're told that Jesus wept on three separate occasions at the grave of Lazarus over Jerusalem in the Garden of Gethsemane, we are, strictly speaking, never told that God the Father weeps, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. And we must remember that. So, we must be careful as to what we infer from John 11.35. We may say that God weeps, perhaps, but as we do, we must remember that this is not true for him precisely as it is for men and women. But then, what may we say about the tears of God? The answer is that we may say anything that is both suggested by the tears of Jesus and substantiated by other verses in the Bible. Let me suggest a few of them. First, we may say that God notices our tears. Nothing is more apparent than this in the story of Christ weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, for the next text tells us that Jesus wept when he saw the others weeping. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews also weeping who came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. In other words, Jesus wept because he noticed their weeping. In the same way, many texts tell us that God the Father sees our tears. They tell us that he is not oblivious. They tell us that he takes notice of them. One example of this, a striking example, is found in the story of God's dealings with aged King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was sick and about to die, and Isaiah was sent to tell him to put his house in order. Instead of doing this, however, Hezekiah began to weep. He cried to God, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. The Bible says that he wept much. And what did God do? Well, surprisingly, we read that God spoke to Isaiah at once and told him to return to Hezekiah with a new message. Return and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will heal thee, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years." As we read the story, we may well feel that the king's tears were unwise, because the fifteen years he lived after this were not good years. Nevertheless, the point of the story is that God heard him, as he also hears us. In the same way, Job declared, He heareth the cry of the afflicted. And David testified, The Lord heard the voice of my weeping. 
These last verses also introduce us to a further thought, however, for they really mean not only that God knows of our tears, but also that he is touched by them. Jesus was touched by the tears of Mary and the others. It's because of this that he wept with them, and in the same way, the Father is touched. It is this that we mean above all when we say that God weeps with his people. Here again, a number of Old Testament texts are helpful. Job said in the verse which we've already quoted, He heareth the cry of the afflicted. David wrote, He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. He said again, The eyes of the Lord are open upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. Here are three verbs, heareth, forgetteth not, are open, each of which suggests that God is genuinely touched by our sorrow. Should we fear then to pour forth our tears before him? Should we ever fear that if we come to God earnestly, we will find him unmoved? All this should be a great encouragement to us in our prayers. Of course, we will not want to pray foolishly, as Hezekiah did, but neither will we want to pray coldly, particularly when it's another's interest that concerns us. Did Jesus weep before his Father in heaven? Then so can we, and we will find our tears effective. Notice one more thing about our tears and the concern which both the Father and Son have for them. We've seen that God notices our tears and is touched by them. Notice, thirdly, that God remembers our tears and that they're therefore precious to him. In the Psalms, there's a wonderful verse that expresses this truth in the metaphor, and it's from this verse that I've taken the title of this sermon. David is writing, telling on this occasion of the many griefs he has had as the result of the deeds of his enemies. They fight against him. They slander him, distorting his words. They hide themselves in order to fall upon him by surprise and destroy him. But he cries out to God, Thou numberest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Well, what is the bottle about which David speaks? We know that the Romans frequently had little glass bottles called tear bottles, in which they collected their tears. But that's not what David is thinking of here. The only bottles he knew were large leather bottles, the kind that Jesus later termed wineskins. And he's saying that God possesses such a bottle into which he puts David's tears. In other words, you see, it's not that David presents his tears to God as if he were trying to prove something. See what a terrible life I've had. Rather, God collects David's tears, and he does so in a bottle so large that he will lose none of them. In other words, you see, God notices the tears of his people, he's touched by them, and he places them up in remembrance before him. If you are God's child— you should know that he treasures your tears and that he remembers them perhaps long after you have forgotten. Finally, I want you to see that God acts to remove our tears. That's my fourth point. God notices our tears. He's touched by our tears. He remembers our tears, yes, but 
God also acts to remove our tears and forever. Here again, the example of Jesus is instructive. Suppose for a minute that the 11th chapter of John had ended with the verse we are studying, Jesus wept. Or suppose we should read Jesus wept and then return to the area of the Jordan. Well, wouldn't be much of a story that way. There would be no comfort in it. If that were the case, I even doubt if John would have included the story in his gospel. But this is not what happened. Instead, we read that Jesus first wept, but then acted to raise Lazarus and restore him to his sisters. He wept, but he moved to remove the tears and bring joy to the sisters. The same with the father. He notices our tears, but he also acts to remove them. So we read in the Old Testament, For thou hast delivered mine eyes from tears. Or again, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Or, as in this verse from Isaiah, he will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. We should note that this last verse is picked up twice in the book of Revelation, once in chapter 7 and once in chapter 21, to speak of the final blessedness of God's saints. There we read, These are they who came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, who is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Here is a prophecy of great victory and blessing. And if we ask how it is possible, the answer is that it is made possible through Jesus who was made like us in order that he might redeem us to himself from every kindred and tongue and nation. It is through his blood that our robes are made spotless. It is through his tears that our tears are wiped away. So, where do these truths end? They end with these conclusions. First, do not look at sorrow and death as an unbeliever but see them rather through eyes that have been accustomed to dwell on such promises. This does not mean that we will not sorrow. Sorrow is still sorrow. Death is still an enemy. But it does mean that we must sorrow differently, our sorrow being mixed with faith and expectation. Thus, as Paul acknowledged, we will sorrow, but not as others who have no hope. Second, do not be afraid to feel with those who feel sorrow. For 
What was proper to our Lord and for his Father is not improper for us who were his servants. If Jesus wept for others, we may weep. Indeed, it's as we weep that we most identify with others and exhibit our right to speak the comforting word of the gospel to them. I think of two great examples at this point, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. The Old Testament example is Moses, whom I have mentioned in another context earlier. Moses had learned to weep with his people so much so that he was actually willing to be sent to hell if it could mean that they would experience salvation. The story is a simple one. Moses had gone up into Mount Sinai to receive the law, but as he was receiving it, the people who remained below in the valley were breaking it. God was saying, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. They were worshipping an idol made from Egyptian gold. He was saying, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but this is precisely what they were doing. God revealed this to Moses and asked Moses to step aside while he destroyed the people. Moses was horrified and frightened, horrified at the sin of the people and frightened because he knew that God meant business. He went down the mountain. He dealt with the sin in the best way he knew how. Then, on the next day, he returned with an offer that must have welled up from a heart nearly broken with grief. In Hebrew, it's even choppy, and one sentence is incomplete. We read, And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written. Here, you see, is a great cry from the heart of a man who so identified with his people that he was willing to be sent to hell, if only it could mean their salvation. The other story is from the New Testament. It involves the Apostle Paul. He too grieved for Israel and wrote, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Here, Paul is saying the same thing Moses said, only unlike Moses, Paul knew that the thing for which he was asking was not possible. Do you think that Paul was off the mark? in this expression? He was not. As G. Campbell Morgan once said, actually, Paul was never closer to the mark than this, for it was when he was willing to lose himself for others that he was most like God. So also with us. This is what it means to be godlike or godly. Moreover, it is to those who are willing to be like this that God most often entrusts the work of spreading the gospel. My last point is brief. Do something. Do something. Tears by themselves, what are they? Nothing but salt water. But tears accompanied by action, well, these win souls, or they eloquently commend our actions and reinforce our words. Some people talk about Christianity as if it were the elimination of tears. This is unfortunate, because many come to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior because of this particular way of stating things, thinking that all of the sorrows in life are going to be eliminated. It just is not so. 
God works in the sorrows and in the circumstances, but for his own reasons he does not eliminate them. Now, there's another wrong idea in some presentations of Christianity, and this is the idea that our emotions, especially in the line of tears or sorrow, are wrong. This is not true either. These are part of God's creation. We are emotional beings, and What's more, the Bible exhorts us to weep with those who weep. That's part of identifying with them, feeling as they feel. It's true that we do not sorrow as others who have no hope, but still we sorrow at the loss of a loved one, the presence of sin in the world, sometimes very close at hand, or the actions of loved ones who grieve us. To give just a couple examples, a person may have an alcoholic in his family and genuinely grieve over what that particular individual is doing to his life, actually weep on his behalf. Or, again, it may be a question of a rebellious son or a daughter who runs away, and it would be a hard heart on the part of the parents that does not weep with that child, even as the father of the prodigal son. The joy of the Christian is not an artificial, masked happiness. It's not a surface giddiness. It is joy in the Lord in spite of sorrow. It's based on the fact that we are his particular and peculiar people and that he has a plan for our lives and is able to accomplish that in spite of circumstances. And now, our Father... We ask that you will take these words and bless them to the heart of each one who listens. There are those listening who have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We ask that they might have no peace until they rest in him, for he's the source of all peace. Upon your own, may there be a new sense of the love and compassion of our God, and may there be a greater ability to respond both to him and to those who need the gospel. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father in Heaven is not cold, distant, or apathetic toward His children. You can know and experience His love, grace, and mercy today through faith in Jesus Christ. If you would like an audio copy of this edition of the Bible Study Hour, call us toll-free at 1-800-488-1888 and request the message entitled, Our Tears and God's Bottle, or simply ask for message number 1320. You may also write to us at the Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. This message and additional teachings by Dr. Boyce are accessible by visiting us online at www.alliancenet.org. When you visit our website or when you call or write, be sure to investigate and inquire about the many resources available from the Bible Study Hour and the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, including daily devotionals, information on upcoming conferences, and in-depth written and audio Bible studies, including a vast number of studies by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, our contact information, write the Bible Study Hour, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Call 1-800-488-1888. Or you can visit us online at alliancenet.org. Your prayers, encouraging letters, and financial gifts enable the Bible Study Hour to continue its outreach ministry. 
Once more, today's edition of the Bible Study Hour is entitled, Our Tears in God's Bottle, message number 1320. Thanks for utilizing the Bible Study Hour to be a part of your Christian growth. Join us again as the teaching of Dr. James Montgomery Boyce prepares us to think and act biblically. 